I'm very pleased to be able to, to share my thoughts about uh, the Last Supper and the origins of the Eucharist with you this evening. Of course, I uh, uh, was hoping to come to Dublin for it, but that's not possible um, right now. I hope one day uh, it will be, uh, we will have the occasion uh, to, to do something else. Um, uh, but uh, at least we have the opportunity to be connected uh, in this way uh, on Zoom. Now, I'm working right now on a book on the history of the Roman rite of mass, of the, the core rite or the order of uh, the Roman mass. And perhaps rather foolishly, I decided to include um, a discussion of the Last Supper and the origins um, of the Eucharist. Uh, I say foolishly because that has caused me a lot of extra work. It is quite a difficult and uh, field of study and quite challenging. There are many contested positions on, uh, on this question in scholarship today. But I think it is very worthwhile and also really necessary for us to go to the very beginning. Uh, this historical connection with the Last Supper is really essential for our understanding of the Holy Eucharist. Uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, wrote once, if Jesus did not give his disciples bread and wine as his body and blood, then the church's Eucharistic celebration is empty, a pious fiction and not a reality at the foundation of communion with God and among men. Now, as a theologian and Pope, uh, Joseph Ratzinger made this statement fully aware of the tendency in recent scholarship to emphasize the diversity of primitive Christianity and to question received positions on the origins of the Eucharist. So what I'm trying to do is to enter this rather slippery territory and by selecting some key recent contributions from New Testament scholars, I would like to reassess the central importance of the Last Supper tradition for our understanding of the Holy Eucharist of um, the Mass. And I'd like to begin just uh, with an image um, that really brings us right to the heart of the Catholic tradition. So you have here um, Giotto's depiction of the Last Supper in the wonderful Scroveni Chapel in Padua. Now, a uh, conventional history of the Eucharist would begin with the event depicted here, the Last Supper, and its foundational and formative role in early liturgical practice. So the great Austrian Jesuit liturgical scholar, Josef Andreas Jungmann, asserted in his classical work, Missarum Solemnia, quote, the first Holy Mass was said on the same night in which he was betrayed, end of quote, and that in itself is a quotation of 1 Corinthians 11.23. Now, contemporary scholarship has become much more cautious in constructing historical narratives. Certainly, scholars would agree that by the fourth century, there is a clear idea uh, of the formative impact of the Last Supper tradition 
on the Christian liturgy and the celebration of the Eucharist in particular. But when it comes to the first three centuries, liturgical scholars have become increasingly skeptical as to what extent early Christian practice was really shaped by the Last Supper tradition. Such doubts are strengthened by the observation that not all the community gatherings or community meals that are described as Eucharistic in this early period contained an explicit remembrance, what's known technically as anamnesis of the passion and death of Jesus, nor did they all explicitly evoke the Last Supper through repetition of the words of institution or through the use of bread and wine. Now this question of early liturgical development is inseparable from the question of the historical authenticity and reliability of the biblical testimony. And again, you have a huge um, tradition of scholarship, uh, critical scholarship behind all these question, questions, uh, the well-known sort of a critical Protestant German exegete Rudolf Bultmann, for instance, who simply um, uh, argued that Last Supper narratives in Mark with Matthew and Luke dependent on it are not historically reliable memory, but really a, a legend that reflects the faith of the post-Easter community and put together in order to sort of legitimize the early practice of Christian um, communities. So you have a, an influential strand in uh, today's scholarship continuing this highly skeptical line of Bultmann. On the other hand, among uh, New Testament exegetes, you all have a growing uh, trend that really offers more confidence in the essential reliability of the canonical gospels as a source for the historical Jesus. For instance, there's a Scandinavian school of uh, exegesis associated with the names Harald Riesenfeld and Berger Gerhardsson, um, who have argued for the reliability of the canonical gospels based on rabbinical models of transmission of religious teaching, religious teaching which was transmitted above all by um, oral teaching. So books were luxury goods um, and um, teaching was actually done well face to face and involved certain methods, for example, of memorization, certain techniques, uh, patterns uh, which could be easily memorized. And according to Riesenfeld, one of the privileged of contexts in which the Christ tradition was um, handed on was in fact the liturgy, was uh, the worship of early Christians. Now, this um, school of exegesis uh, started really in the 50s and was received very critically at the time Bultmann was very dominating, but um, now they actually uh, reassessed and um, have gained much more support in New Testament scholarship. Another factor that comes into uh, uh, this difficult equation is the tendency in um, New Testament exegesis thesis and history of early Christian liturgy to understand the Last Supper in the wider context of the meals Christ held during his public ministry. These meals are held, set against the backdrop of contemporary Jewish meal practice, 
as well as the broader framework of table customs, table fellowship in Greco-Roman culture. So Jesus holds daily meals with tax collectors and sinners. These meals serve as images of the coming kingdom of God. They, in a way, anticipate that sort of fulfillment at the end of time. And they are often linked with significant words, or parables, for instance, and deeds, miracles. In these meals, customary Jewish concerns about ritual purity and ceremonial observances are deliberately disregarded and challenged. Then you have the feeding miracles of uh, our Lord, which are presented as symbolic anticipations of the messianic banquet in the age to come, of the, the banquet with the Messiah. And of course, the risen Christ is recognized by his disciples in connection with eating. He makes himself known in the breaking of bread, disciples at Emmaus. So especially in the Gospel of Luke, there is a, a substructure of 10 meal narratives with the Last Supper standing at the center of it. Of course, meals um, are important uh, for, for human life, for human existence, generally speaking. It's not just about um, hunger and, and, and satisfying that hunger the feeding, but uh, meals are expressions of fellowship, they are experienced as pleasing, and uh, many, perhaps most religious traditions, have some form of sacred meal as part of their ritual, and the Old and the New Testament conform to this pattern as well. Now this um, broadening of our understanding of the Last Supper is certainly enriching. We can see it in the context of these meals which uh, Christ holds during his public ministry. But these um, emphasis on uh, the table fellowship of Jesus in his ministry tends to underestimate the singular character of the Last Supper. Last Supper was not uh, a kind of open table fellowship, but it was um, held under very specific um, uh, circumstances. In the first place, it was held in proximity, immediate proximity to the passion and death of Jesus. And as the well-known New Testament scholar N.T. Wright uh, says, the Last Supper was really the central symbolic action which provides the key of Jesus's implicit story about his own death, end of quote. Unlike other meals in his public ministry, Jesus held the Last Supper in a limited circle with 12 only. And the setting is not that of open table fellowship, but a private room, the upper room, which would have been provided by a wealthy patron in crowded Jerusalem at, at the time of the Passover. And what Jesus said and did in the context of that meal certainly stood out and transformed the original setting into a new reality. Now, any historical argument uh, in favor of Jesus's institution of the Eucharist as a sacred meal in remembrance of his sacrificial death, needs to account for the evident differences in the four narratives of institution which we find in the New Testament. And I'd like to bring up um, a parallel synopsis of these texts to make it easier for you to follow. So I hope you can see them now. And of course, uh, St. John's Gospel does not relate the institution of the Eucharist in the context of the Last Supper. 
So this leads us to a number of questions. Uh, when did the Last Supper take place? What character did the meal have? What were the words used by Jesus over bread and wine? And how are they to be interpreted? Now, in the first place, when we come to the date of the Last Supper, the Synoptic Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mark is usually seen as the oldest, seem to present a clear picture. Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples on the first day of the week-long festival of unleavened bread in the evening. Now, Jews reckoned the day from sunset to sunset, so this evening meal was held at the start of the 14th day of the Jewish month, Nisan. That was the date of the Passover feast, which began with the evening, with sunset, after the lambs had been sacrificed in the temple in the afternoon. This day would be a Thursday, with the crucifixion taking place on Friday, the day before the Sabbath. The synoptic narratives present the Last Supper as a Passover meal, most clearly perhaps Luke, where Christ tells his disciples, you see it here, I have, earn, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. At the same time, however, typical elements of the Passover, above all the lamb to be eaten, but also the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs are not mentioned in the description of the meal itself in the Synoptic Gospels. Only bread and wine are mentioned, which were characteristic of every kind of festive Jewish meal at the time. Now, the fourth gospel presents a different chronology. Uh, it agrees with regard to the days of the week, but it implies at the same time that Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation for the Passover, which means the 13th of Nisan, and more precisely, as this day was drawing to its close, so in the afternoon, with the sunset, the new day, the 14th of Nisan would have begun. Very significantly, Jesus dies on the cross at the time when the lambs were slaughtered for the celebration of the Passover, at the time that could also be done, that could only be done in the temple of Jerusalem. So according to this timeline, the Last Supper was held on the evening before the Passover, and it could not have been a Passover meal. Still, it would have been in close proximity to it, as explicitly stated in John 13, verse 1, and thus takes on many of the marks and meanings of the Passover. Unlike the synoptics, John does not describe the meal itself, but focuses on Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Now, how can this apparent discrepancy between the Synoptic Gospels and the Fourth Gospel be reconciled? There have been theories about the use of two different calendars, notably by the scholar Annie Joubert, uh, who argued that John followed um, the official lunar calendar of the Jerusalem Temple, whereas the Synoptics adopted a solar calendar, which is attested in Jewish writings and in the Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran. So, in this view, the Last Supper would have been an anticipated Passover meal held on a Tuesday evening, according to Joubert. Uh, there are all sorts of difficulties with this reconstruction, above all the uh, claim that the Last Supper was really held on a Tuesday uh, and not on a Thursday, as all the Gospels agree. The Question is a difficult one. Perhaps the best recent discussion of it is found in, in, in Brandt Pitre's book, uh, Jesus and the um, Last Supper, which is really the second book Brandt Pitre 
dedicated to the uh, this uh, question. There's it's a shorter, earlier book which is uh, uh, has more is more popular, and then there is the more scholarly book which um, came out in 2015 and is in many ways the uh, I think the best um, discussion of that question. Although, as I will later say, I don't agree with the hypothesis he presents for the dating of the Last Supper, but uh, really his discussion should be uh, the starting point for anyone who wants to uh, delve into that um, question. So, for a historian, um, at least from my point of view, there are a number of points that speak in favor of the Johannine account. Not least that according to the testimony of the synoptics themselves, the high priests and scribes were looking for a possibility to have Jesus executed, but not during the feast, i.e. not during the upcoming Passover feast, to avoid a tumult among the people. Also, it, it would be difficult really to um, reconstruct the, the, the very dense sequence of events, uh, the arrest, the trial, uh, the execution of Jesus on one of the most important uh, holy days, feast days of the year, i.e. Passover. So perhaps more likely to have been done uh, on the day of um, preparation. So the question is by no means um, settled, and as I said earlier, uh, Brandt Petrie makes a strong argument in favor of um, the synoptic chronology, and then really arguing that John really agrees with it. His argument is based on the semantic range of the term Passover in the New Testament, which means sometimes uh, the feast of Passover, sometimes it can mean the whole week, which is the feast, the week-long feast of unleavened bread, a bit like when we speak about, say, Easter, it can mean um, Easter Sunday, could perhaps also mean the Easter octave. And sometimes it's, uh, it's a Passover meal, sometimes it's the Passover lamb. So it's a certain um, ambiguity, ambiguity, in, uh, ambiguity in, in, in the use of the word. And um, so Peter constructs a careful argument um, in favor of the synoptic date. And then uh, he, he really says that John agrees with it. I must say, I'm not entirely convinced by his reconstruction, and I tend to uh, favor a proposal which the um, American exegete John P. Mayer um, proposed. Now, Mayer um, argued, and I'll bring you a sort of longish quote uh, from his work, A Marginal Jew, sen quote, sensing or suspecting that um, his enemies were closing in for an imminent final attack and therefore taking into account that he might not be able to celebrate the coming Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus instead arranged a solemn farewell meal with his inner circle of disciples just before the Passover, wanting privacy and having his days taken up with teaching in the Jerusalem temple, Jesus chose to have an evening meal with his closest followers in the house of some affluent Jerusalem supporter on a Thursday around sunset as the 14th of Nisan was beginning. The supper, though not a Passover meal and not celebrated as a substitute Passover meal was nevertheless anything but an ordinary meal. With Jesus bidding farewell to his closest disciples as he prepared himself for a possibility of an imminent and violent death, the tone of the meal would naturally be both solemn and religious. 
accompanied by all the formalities, reclining at table, drinking wine, singing hymns, etc., that Jeremias, German Protestant exegete, Joachim Jeremias, very influential for a study of the Eucharistic words of Jesus, that Joachim Jeremias uses to prove the Passover nature of the supper, end of quote from John P. Mayer. Now, what would have been the formalities or ritual elements of such a solemn and religious meal? Now, we are today much more skeptical about what we actually know about sort of Jewish religious meal practice at the time, even uh, regarding the Passover meal. You see the texts, the codified texts we have are all considerably later. They come from the rabbinical Jewish tradition, which really is only codified and, and standardized um, from the year about 200 onwards. So you're talking about more than 150 years after the Last Supper. Now that doesn't mean that uh, what uh, observant Jews at the time of Jesus would have uh, celebrated was radically different, but we just, it, it also means that it will probably not have been exactly the same. There would have been variations, there would have been um, differences that um, uh, are really owing to oral tradition, varieties of oral tradition. So it wasn't sort of codified, written down. So we can't just simply um, argue our way sort of back from these later uh, Jewish uh, texts to the practice of Jesus around the year AD 30. Um, still, there are some contemporary sources that clearly give us um, an, an idea of um, a religious uh, meal, a use of bread and the use of um, wine, which has, well, a certain sacramental quality to it, where ordinary elements of human subsistence, when they are blessed, um, become really uh, sources of, of spiritual, uh, spiritual grace, spiritual uh, blessing. There's the uh, um, text known as Joseph and Aseneth, um, variously dated between the first century BC and the second century AD, which uh, gives us really such a, um, a context for um, a, uh, um, the association of food and drink and ointment, by the way, with um, the spirit of life, with a sort of spiritual um, blessing. Certainly at any formal meal, at any festive meal, um, they would have prayed before and after. Jewish meal blessings would have been said. Uh, Jewish prayers of thanks would have been offered after the meal. And we, while we cannot sort of um, take the later rabbinical texts as they are, so word for word, and, and um, extrapolate them into the first century, they give us certainly an idea, they give us a, a general pattern. Now, um, for the Last Supper, then, we can expect a ritual use of bread and wine, uh, the latter wine being a particular sign of a festification. However, according to the institution narratives in the New Testament, what Jesus said and did at the occasion was unprecedented and cannot simply be derived from, from any Jewish ritual context. The actual words he spoke over bread and the bread and over the cup of wine make them signs anticipating his redemptive passion and death. So while I consider it more likely that the Last Supper was not a Passover meal in the proper sense, the vicinity of the Passover is nonetheless significant and provides a theological context for understanding 
the new reality instituted by Jesus. And in fact, uh, no less than uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, follows to a large extent Mayer's interpretation of the Last Supper narratives in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, the second volume on um, passion. So Jesus was fully aware that he was about to die and he anticipated that he would not be able to celebrate the coming Passover according to the established Jewish custom. Hence he gathered the 12 for a special meal of farewell that followed no specific Jewish ritual, though it would include the customary lamb blessing. And in the course of the meal, he gave himself as the true lamb and so instituted his own Passover. When we look back to the passage from Luke 22, which I have highlighted here on the screen, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Well, this could of course mean this meal, this Passover could refer to this meal Jesus was holding with the 12. It could also point to the new reality he was about to institute in anticipation of his uh, passion and death, which is really an anticipation of, the, of eschatological fulfillment of the messianic banquet in the, the age to come. So the decisive moment of this last supper meal was not the customary consumption of the Passover lamb, which even the synoptics actually do not mention in their description of the actual meal, doesn't mean it, it um, necessarily wasn't there, but it, it's even for the synoptics, it's not important. But the decisive moment was Jesus instituting the new Passover and giving himself as the true lamb. And this is actually implied in John's description of the crucifixion, where the sacrificial rubric of the book of Exodus is applied to the crucified Jesus. That says, you shall not break any of its lamb's bones. So when you prepare, when you slaughter the Passover lamb, you shall do it in such a way that you do not break any of the lamb's bones. So it was actually cut in a very particular way. Now, um, and that refers to the scene of the crucifixion where in fact the bones of Jesus, the legs of Jesus are not broken as would have been the custom at the time to accelerate the, uh, the death of someone who was condemned to crucifixion, but he was already dead. And uh, so the, then the soldier opened his side with a spear out flowing blood and water. So the new Passover then is Jesus' sacrificial death, which fulfills and exceeds the meaning of the old Passover. That would be in harmony with passage from 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And the contents of this new Passover is signified in the Last Supper when Jesus shares with his disciples bread and wine, which he identifies with his body and his blood. I'm moving now to the actual words of institution as they are handed down to us in the scriptures. Now, if we follow the standard assignment of the synoptic gospels, between 69 and 96, roughly, there are some scholars who date them actually earlier. Well, but if you follow that dating, then the earliest witness to the Last Supper narrative would be the Apostle Paul's account in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Scott Hahn has actually noted the singular character of this text, because this institution narrative in 1 Corinthians is by far the most substantial verbatim quotation Paul ever makes of Christ's teaching. Paul, who is, presents himself as a 
close to Christ as, the, as his apostles proclaiming his teaching actually quotes very few of Christ's words in his letters, but the longest uh, section is here in 1 Corinthians 11. Also, Paul makes clear, and he makes that clear in terminology that seems to be um, coming from um, specific rabbinical terminology. He makes clear that he hands on, hands down, what he has received himself. So he, he passes on what he has received himself. And the letter is usually dated either the year 53 or 54. So we are less than a generation away from the reported events. Now, so this is probably the oldest account. Now the Last Supper accounts, especially regarding the words of institution, fall into two distinct groups. We have on the one side, Mark and Matthew. Uh, what they have in common is an explicit reference to the blood of the covenant, which is a quotation really from um, the book of Exodus and uh, refers to the great uh, sealing of the covenant on Mount Sinai, Moses and the people of Israel. Whereas first Corinthians and Luke um, take up the announcement of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31. So you have the words of institution four times in the New Testament, which confirm, conforms to what uh, scholars call the criterion of multiple attestation, multiple attestation. Usually such multiple attestation is found in the New Testament of more general concepts and uh, words like um, the kingdom of God, for instance. But here you have some quite precise saying, which um, is normally not of attested so many times, but four times in the New Testament. So there is a certain, well, likelihood even for the critical scholar that um, these words actually reflect what our Lord said at the Last Supper. Now, of course, these words are also slightly different in the four gospels, in the three gospels that report them and in Paul. So while they certainly represent what scholars call the ipsissima vox of Jesus, so the, the voice of Jesus, the kind of thing he would have said, the question of the ipsissima verba, the, the precise words he said, is more difficult to answer. And in fact, it may in the end be impossible for us to answer this question with historical tools, but in our process of historical inquiry, we will actually gain a better understanding of the biblical testimony and of the Last Supper um, tradition. The Apostle Paul converted dramatically around the year 34. That's the date usually given. He visited Jerusalem in the year 37. His account of the Lord's Supper um, which is actually quite a rare word. Um, it's found only here in the New Testament and also in later tradition. It's very rarely used. So we speak uh, more frequently of the Lord's Supper than actually early Christian tradition. His account of the Lord's Supper is um, held to reflect liturgical practice in Antioch, great uh, Roman uh, city at the time, and uh, also the seat of an early Christian community. And the um, last supper he describes with regard actually to his addresses in the church in Corinth was still combined with the evening meal at the time, although the actual 
right over bread and wine was clearly distinct from it. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, used to be considered often um, really at, well, somewhat at odds with the other apostles. It was often argued that he represents a um, particular uh, tradition which um, really uh, is somewhat at distance from especially uh, the um, the Jerusalem, let's say, the, 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 the apostles that were, were called in Galilee and whose ministry focused more on, on, on Judea, Judea and Galilee. So there, there's often a sort of gap seen between, um, say, the Petrine and Pauline Christianity. Again, it's, uh, there's a lot of interesting um, stuff happening in uh, more recent biblical scholarship, uh, which is also, also somewhat new to me because that's not my primary expertise. Uh, so I've tried to get a good, good idea of this. But definitely this um, gap which earlier scholarship um, saw between Pauline and uh, Christianity and the Christianity of the other apostles is, is no longer uh, held. In fact, it is emphasized that Paul was very well connected with the other apostles, that he met them um, personally, that uh, he received teaching from them. He had his differences, uh, had his arguments with some of them, but he's basically part of the same stream of um, uh, tradition. Now, um, so uh, I think you can't just see um, Paul as uh, sort of the odd one who stands out um, against the, the other apostles. So his tradition is more representative than it is often claimed um, um, to be. Now, um, he begins his narrative with on the night when he was uh, uh, betrayed. That uh, surely presumes a fuller description of the passion of Jesus, known to the Corinthians, but Paul doesn't need to recall this at the time. According then to this tradition, which is pre-Pauline, which is not made by Paul, but was actually forged before Paul and received by him, Jesus took bread, said a prayer of thanksgiving, Eucharistesas, where our Eucharist comes from, and broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. This, this uh, particular phrasing has certain differences from uh, the way it's put in the other, uh, in, the, in the Gospels, but that doesn't need to concern us um, now yeah, here. Hopefully one day you can actually read this up in, 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 in my book, follow this up in my book. Um, the actual um, phrase, which is for you, my body which is for you, does suggest liturgical use. It suggests that this was already part of liturgical use. Um, then for also follows the dominical command, do this in remembrance of me. Again, it suggests that they were already doing this in the remembrance of Jesus. Then follows the rite over the cup after the supper. It's not quite clear whether that means that uh, the two ritual actions framed the meal as was common Jewish practice. So first the rite over the bread, then the normal meal, and then the rite over the cup, or whether both were actually held at the end of it. The same question is raised by the description in Luke. Now the action over the cup unfolds, unfolds in the same way as the action over the bread. Very terse description. Um, 
it's often frustrating to read the Apostle Paul from a historian's point of view, because there's so much he doesn't tell us, he doesn't need to tell his addresses, because there's a context, an oral context, which they share, so he can presume a lot. We would like to know more, we would like to know all this, uh, all these details and all this background. So we're often in the dark, unfortunately. So in the same way, um, that's what he says. Now, the phrase um, which is used over the cup is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That relates to the proclamation of a new and eschatological covenant in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31. The difficulty with that is that in Jeremiah, this is not connected with sacrifice or the shedding of blood. Get, get back to that uh, in a moment. Then follows the second command to repeat precisely this action in the Lord's memory. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This idea of remembrance goes back to the Jewish understanding of, uh, sort of liturgically remembering the saving deeds, the saving actions of God. So when you remember God's saving actions at the Passover, you, as it were, become present to them. You become, as it were, sharing in, in, in these events as if they happened right now, sort of remembrance, making them uh, presence. Now, the Pauline narrative, as the others, concludes on an eschatological note. It opens a horizon, really, that goes far beyond, well, the here and now, but goes, uh, opens up into the age to come. Um, so Paul makes this very clear. He sees the ritual meal, what he calls the Lord's Supper, as an anticipation of the Lord's second coming and the messianic banquet in the kingdom of God. In the Synoptic Gospels, then, um, the words of institutions are part of the Passion um, narratives. They, Matthew and Mark, um, belong together um, here. Again, I would, I, I'm going to pass over some of the linguistic um, details. Uh, the words over the um, bread are very similar. I mean, this is my body, uh, this is my body, with some, um, um, very minor variations, but the core is uh, the same. You do have a difference in the words over the cup, because in, in Matthew and Mark, you have an explicit reference to the narrative of the covenant made on Mount Sinai. After having made the usual animal sacrifice, and when we talk about sacrifice in the Old Testament, it usually means the sacrifice of animals, often accompanied by a cereal offerings, but it usually is the sacrifice of animals. Um, after doing that, Moses sprinkled half of the blood on the altar and read the book of the covenant to which the people gave their obedience. Then Moses, and that's a quote, uh, Exodus 24, 8, took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Together with the leaders of the Israelites, Moses went up to the mountain and saw the God of Israel. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, they, and they ate and drank. So first you have this sacrifice, extraordinary scene as a sprinkling the blood of the uh, sacrificed animals on the people, sealing the covenant. And then Moses actually goes up and has a meal with God holds a meal with God, where he sees the God of Israel. Again, we can't see God in this life, but Moses does at this occasion. 
The reference to the covenant of Moses is also evident in the phrase shed for many. Uh, the blood of the covenant which is shed for many. Now in this translation and in many other translations, this is actually uh, rendered poured out for many, which is perhaps somewhat misleading because what we are talking here is the forceful shedding of a liquid as in a sacrifice rather than pouring out, uh, say, a glass of wine. It's, it's not, not just that, it's the forceful shedding and so really points towards the shedding of Jesus's blood on the cross. And so actually in the liturgical, there's a bit of a debate on how to interpret, uh, how to translate and interpret this shedding um, uh, of, um, of the blood because um, it's actually a participle form. It's a present tense passive voice participle in the, um, in the Greek original, which kind of a present or a future meaning. And in fact, in the Latin liturgical tradition, it's interpreted in a future sense, will be shed. So it uh, may refer in the first place actually to the blood that will be shed, but it certainly also refers to the blood that is poured out in a, in a sacramental way at the last time. And again, you have the perspective of eschatological fulfillment. In Mark it is, truly I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So the opening up the reality of the um, messianic banquet in the age um, to come. When we come to uh, Matthew, then you probably have only a slightly, uh, you have, have slight literary or perhaps liturgical reduction of the account in Mark. When we come to Luke, we have a difference here. So on one hand, you have Matthew and Mark. On the other hand, you have Luke and First um, Corinthians. Luke has this whole section, um, which is uh, which which is quite different, which sets it apart from um, the the other two accounts called the longer reading, where you have an, a second cup. It, it, it's probably uh, um, authentic. I mean, there's uh, it's it's probably or part of the original Gospel of Luke, and it raises some uh, questions of um, interpretation. I I can't go into um, here. Um, what exactly it is, is disputed and some scholars think this really is a kind of post-Easter reworking of, uh, of the original um, tradition, which you find attested in Mark. One um, point, however, I should like to comment on because it's, it's a discussion that you may still remember from some a uh, few years ago. See, in, um, in, in Mark and Matthew, you have this phrase that the blood is shed for many. Um, it's hyperpolon in Mark, peripolon in Matthew, promultis in Latin. That, that was quite a debate some years ago when we had the new translation of the mass into English. The, Latin phrase uh, promultis was actually translated well correctly as for many, and it used to be um, for all. Now, in the immediate post-conciliar liturgical tra uh, translations, um, it was translated for all because the idea uh, was had actually an idea promoted by the eminent uh, Lutheran exegete Joachim Jeremias that in Aramaic and Hebrew you don't really have a word for um, uh, that distinguishes many for all and many really implies all is tantamount to all a bit of a dubious philological argument which is discarded today but was actually widely accepted at the time today I think there's 
consensus that Hebrew and Aramaic, just as um, Indo-European languages, are very capable of distinguishing between all and many. And um, in fact, a form many takes up a prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, 53. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So uh, Jesus really identifies himself here with the suffering servant of Isaiah and refers to precisely um, these words. And in doing so, he presents his own suffering and death as sacrificial and redemptive. He's the one who is bearing the sins of many. You, there also, there's also the passage from Matthew and Mark where Jesus refers to himself as the son of man who came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, um, who are these many? Sometimes they are identified with the Gentiles, so known, the non-Jews, but it's actually more likely that these many are the people of Israel. See, the um, uh, Last Supper is held with the 12 apostles. The 12 apostles represent the 12 tribes of Israel and are in sense our restoration of the 12 tribes. Now, that is quite a project because many or most of these 12 tribes had in fact disappeared since the Assyrian invasion and the loss of the Northern Kingdom in the eighth century BC. So eight centuries before, um, most of these 12 tribes had disappeared. And so a restoration of the 12 tribes is an eschatological um, pro project really. Uh, now, but Jesus does so in the Last Supper, which is held with these 12, with the 12 apostles standing for the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's really the whole of Israel that is meant here. The many are the whole of Israel, but Israel's election is not just for itself, but it's meant to be a sign for the nations, a redemptive sign for the nations, so that God's salvation is offered not only to Israel, but also for the Gentiles. I think it's important to note here that um, when we look at these words, the blood shed for many, this is not about the question of whether many or all will be saved. In fact, there are descriptions of the eschatological banquet in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that clearly state that not all will share in it. It's a question for systematic theology, uh, the universal offer of salvation and the particular realization and life of, of individuals. But it is not actually the question uh, that is immediately relevant for the words here. The many are so the whole of Israel and through Israel, really all the Gentiles, for them all the blood is shed. So um, having reviewed sort of this data, uh, perhaps you may ask, uh, were the evangelists not capable um, of actually relating the same words, the words that were actually spoken, or were they not interested uh, in them? Well, the way the gospels came into being is a very complex process. You have um, many years of oral tradition sort of parts being handed down until 
the gospel actually is put together as we now uh, know it. Now, even an extremely skeptical scholar, such as the German uh, Protestant or former Protestant, I think he's renounced all Christianity now, Gerd Ludemann, concedes that all in all, the differences are not that great. Um, and the differences um, represent a kind of variability that you should really expect of oral tradition or as, as scholars today also speak of, of social memory. So, uh, which it can be malleable, uh, especially if, if as long as it is not codified. Um, so we have the basic data with a certain um, variability. When it comes to the word over the bread, it seems pretty clear. I mean, this is my body. Jesus identified the broken bread with his, his body. When it comes to the words over the cup, certainly Exodus 24.8 is also in the background of Luke and Corinthians. It's just that the actual words are somewhat uh, mitigated. So perhaps to also to mitigate the scandal to Jews at the time of the idea that um, uh, the blood of Jesus should be consumed, should be taken. Of course, um, in, um, from, from the perspective of Easter, it, it, became very clear that this is not about the drinking of the human blood of Jesus, but a sacramental participation in his redemptive self-offering and a, a, a sharing in his glorified, transformed uh, body and blood. Um, but the formula nonetheless is very stark in uh, Matthew and Mark, and that could be uh, an argument in favor of it, uh, because it seems so unlikely that anyone would come up with this that um, it has the ring of authenticity. Before I conclude, um, a word about John, the Gospel of John. Of course, the Gospel of John doth not, does not have the uh, narrative of institution, but um, it has this, the great bread of life discourse in chapter six. This is given in uh, the synagogue of Capernaum shortly because of the Passover, date is significant, after the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee. Now, um, after having witnessed the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves, uh, those listening to Jesus in the synagogue bring up the manna, the bread God gave every day to nourish the Israelites during the exodus from Egypt. In response, Jesus speaks of himself as the new manna that nourishes for eternal life. He identifies himself with the bread of life or the living bread which comes down from heaven. Now, if you read through chapter six, for some time, this identification with the bread of life can be taken in the personal sense as a sharing and fellowship with Jesus through faith in him. Jesus speaks of himself as as the vine, uh, the vine, as uh, you know, as uh, the, the good, the good shepherd, and so on. But once you um, pass on to, especially the section I, I uh, I'm showing you on the screen, uh, first verses fifty-one to fifty-eight, we enter really quite a striking, striking um, Eucharistic realism that moves from the earlier figurative sense of eating to a very concrete and palpable, palpable sense 
of Jesus presenting his flesh and blood as real food and drink. So his flesh is real food. His blood is real um, drink. So it's, I mean, it seems virtually impossible to um, sustain a metaphorical reading at this point. Also, in fact, as uh, Raymond Brown observes, to eat someone's flesh in the Bible is a metaphor for hostile action. Um, so at this point, a metaphorical reading is really extremely unlikely. But at the same time, of course, um, Jesus identifies himself with the flesh, with, sorry, with the Son of Man. He said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. And by that identification with the Son of Man, who is a messianic figure, he's really the, the Messiah, um, Jesus makes clear that he's not at all inviting cannibalism, but a sharing in his risen and glorified flesh and blood. That comes up also later in verse 61 to 64, where Jesus explains uh, actually his teaching to his perplexed disciples, where again he refers to the Son of Man ascending where he was um, before. So uh, it is actually the, the spirit-filled body and uh, blood of uh, Jesus that he offers as real food and um, real drink. Now, uh, John speaks, of course, of the flesh, the sarks in Greek, not of the body, soma. This is probably um, because of the importance of the word flesh Christology in, in um, John. The, uh, the prologue already speaks about the word made flesh, logos, sarks in Greek. And that is probably the reason for the preference of, uh, uh, for Sarks instead of um, body. So uh, if, you, if you see the strong sacramental realism here, it is very unlikely that the Johannine communities uh, did not have a Eucharistic celebration. I think uh, John actually builds on the Last Supper tradition, which is firmly enough established and sort of, um, um, sort of expands on it. So um, when we review then, uh, especially recent New Testament scholarship on the Last Supper, we find considerable support for the thesis that Jesus in proximity of his arrest, trial and execution was preparing for his death, which he understood as a redemptive sacrifice. He assembled the 12 apostles for a meal in the atmosphere of the Passover, whether or not Last Supper was actually a Passover meal, and he anticipated his self-offering on the cross by identifying the broken bread as his body and the poured cup of wine as the blood of the covenant. So he acted as a new Moses here, inaugurating a new covenant to gather the 12 tribes of Israel and through them the Gentiles into an eschatological kingdom. By giving himself as a true lamb, Jesus instituted a new Passover that fulfilled and exceeded the meaning of the old Passover. And this new Passover was what scholars call a cultic or a really a liturgical act. It was not just a generic um, table fellowship, but it was a liturgical act by repeating the rite Jesus instituted over bread and wine. The disciples could not only remember his saving death, but also receive a share in its saving effects and a foretaste of the messianic banquet in the heavenly kingdom. So, I think even as sort of, uh, conscientious historians, we can say uh, with reasonable you know, certainty that 
the substance of the Eucharistic words of institution originate with Jesus himself. And I'd like to um, uh, conclude just by showing you one um, depiction of the Last Supper that, in my view, uh, makes precisely uh, the point which, uh, which I think is in, in recent scholarship tries to make, that in instituting uh, the Eucharist, Jesus institutes actually a, um, is a cultic reality, so a liturgical um, reality. So what I actually want to show you is uh, Peter Paul Rubens' um, depiction of the Last Supper, but painted in 1630 to 1631. You see um, Jesus surrounded by uh, the apostles, blessing the bread and having a, a sort of cup um, uh, in, of wine in front of him, and uh, looking up to heaven, uh, having his hands, uh, his right hand in a, a traditional gesture of blessing. Um, and in the background, you have actually an altar. The altar has um, uh, scriptural words from the Psalms. Um, so, uh, uh, invoking the, the memory of God's saving events, but still you have, you have an altar with candles burning on it. I think it seems to me Rubens wanted to say here what we are witnessing is a not just a simple table fellowship, but uh, it's worship, it's a cultic um, event, which um, the Last Supper was, and the earliest Eucharistic celebrations uh, of, of uh, Christian communities um, were. So this is the context for uh, the Last Supper, uh, which I think is important to, for us to, to appreciate. And so in that sense, we, I think, can affirm uh, that there is this historical con continuity through all the variations of particular forms of uh, the Last Supper and um, Holy Mass. So thank you very much for your attention. I'm sorry I spoke a bit longer than originally uh, intended, but um, uh, thank you very much uh, for, for uh, staying with me.